Thank you, Stu. Good to be here this morning. Good to see you here this morning. Uh, and Stu, I just want to make a comment about last uh, week's service. At the end of the responsive reading last week, I looked over and Stu was going like this. I thought he meant I'd been talking too loud and, and that I should talk, uh, I should quiet down a little bit. But it turns out he just wanted me to tell you guys that you could sit down. <laughs> well, so this week we're going to be a little bit more coordinated. Stu, this means talk lower. This means talk louder. And this means probably stop talking altogether. Okay? All right. All eyes are on you. Let's pray. Father, it's your word, and we are your people, so we pray that your spirit would have your way in our lives, uh, continue to have your way in our lives uh, during this morning service as we uh, listen to your word here. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Abraham Kuyper probably is not a household name in uh, most uh, American Christian homes these days, but he was a very influential character in the late 1800s, early 1900s in the Reformed world. He was an uh, intellectual, uh, a theologian, a politician. In fact, he was uh, from 1901 to 1904, he was the, the president of the Netherlands. He started the new uh, new or Free University of Amsterdam. Uh, he was a very, uh, very uh, talented and influential, in, influential man during those days. Uh, he's probably best known for his uh, teaching about uh, the place of God in everyday life. He's very well known uh, for a particular quote that he gave, and I'll read it here. It, he gave it at, his, at the 1880 inaugural address at this uh, Free University, Free University of Amsterdam uh, opening address. He said, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Exclamation point, which I assume he made. But before he got to that quote, he said this, and I quote, and so our small school comes on the scene, blushing with embarrassment at the name university, poor in money, most frugally endowed with scholarly might, more lacking than receiving human favor, unquote. He said that because they had five professors, eight students, and a really, really small library. But he went on undaunted and gave a fairly fiery speech uh, presented a grand vision for Christian scholarship. And that vision, and throughout that speech, he talked about uh, what's called sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty. I had to practice saying that all week. <laughs> it's the idea that God is sovereign over every sphere of life, that is, over every square inch of the universe. And incidentally, when he said that in the Dutch language, he didn't, he didn't say square inch. He actually said thumbnail, but they've translated into English as square inch because it sounds better than thumbnail, I guess. So this morning, we're going to briefly look at the life of Joseph. We'll see God's sphere sovereignty at work in his life as God works in a number of arenas uh, to work in and through uh, this young man's life. And I hope that we walk out of those doors this morning with this thought planted firmly in our minds and in our hearts, that God is sovereign over every sphere of life, 
over absolutely every square inch of the universe. So will you please stand with me, if you're able, for our scripture reading from Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Verses 1 to 4. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Please be seated. So with those words uh, ringing in our ears, we begin our brief look at this uh, story of Joseph. We're going to look at three episodes, and we'll title the three episodes according to their settings. So we're going to have the episode number one, and that will be in the pastures. Episode two is going to be in the prison, and number th- episode number three is going to be, maybe you guessed it, in the palace. In the palaces. So that's, a, that's our three settings, pastures, prison, palace. Here we go with episode number one. Right out of the starting block, Joseph's father, Jacob, is highlighted. It says, verse one, we read, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings. That's a clue, and it clues us into the fact that this this story, the beginning of this story, starts with Jacob reminding us that this story falls in line with the uh, forefathers of the Israelite nation that God is bringing into existence, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Also, this first part of chapter 37, where it mentions Jacob, is in contrast to chapter 36, which comes just before 37, And it looks at the life of Esau, and it's a contrast, because Esau, as if we were to go back there, we find Esau has married Canaanite wives, a couple of them, and he lives in the land of Seir, or the land of Edom, so he's not in the promised land, and he's married some Canaanite wives. That's the chapter before, and now it tells us right off the bat that Jacob is in the land of his forefathers. It's a contrast. Esau is uh, out of the land. Jacob is in the land. Showing us, I think, as well, that this is not an isolated story. This is part of the ongoing story of God beginning a nation and uh, that this story of Joseph is just a part of that ongoing story. Similar to every story in Scripture, is it not? All of it is part of the overall grand narrative that God is giving us. Every story fits in there somehow. So we start with uh, Joseph. It says he's, he's 17 years old, so he's just a kid. Do we have anybody in here 17 years old? I thought so. That is how old Joseph was. 17 years old, just a kid. He's tending sheep with his half-brothers. And then it, there's that sentence right in the middle of that uh, passage that it seems like it just, it just kind of jumps out. And he brought a bad report of his brothers to his father. Then it just moves on to say how much his father loves him. But he brings that bad report. It doesn't say what's in the bad report. We don't know what it is. But he was tattletaling uh, somehow that they they did something wrong, something bad. And then immediately it says that uh, he is the favorite 
son of Jacob. So much so that Jacob made a special coat, and many of our translations say that it's a coat of many colors. However, in the Hebrew, the adjective for that coat is really uncertain. We don't know if it's many colors, striped, but we do know that it had a significance of authority and some kind of special status. That much we do know about this uh, coat. Uh, then the, the brothers, at the end of that passage that we read, it says that they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now in the Hebrew, it says that they hated him and that they could not even say shalom to their baby brother. That's what it says in the Hebrew. They couldn't say shalom to him. They hated him. Strong word there. And added to that, this naive 17-year-old tells his brothers and his fathers a couple of dreams that he has. And the meanings of those dreams are not hard to interpret for anybody, for any of the brothers, any of the fathers, or his mother. They understood those dreams to mean that someday the brothers and the father would bow down to Joseph uh, because he was in authority over them. And that did not sit well with either the dad or the brothers. Incidentally, it's uh, interesting in this overall story of uh, Joseph to see the place of dreams and see the symmetry out there. Here, there's Joseph's have these two dreams. Uh, later on in the prison, you remember, there's two dreams by the uh, prisoners there. And then later on in the palace, there's two dreams by the uh, pharaoh. And in that day, that culture, uh, whenever, there was, whenever somebody had two dreams that were similar, that were back-to-back, it emphasized the validity and the uh, assurance that whatever the dream conveyed would come to pass. So now here's where the story gets uh, really interesting in terms of God's sovereignty. Uh, just watch this. Joseph's brothers are watching dad's sheep up in Shechem. It says in verse 37, verse 14, So he, that is Jacob, said to him, Joseph, Go now and see if it's well with your brothers, with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. Shechem is 50 miles north of this valley of Hebron. 50 miles. Now if we thought Joseph was a little naive in uh, you know, tattletelling on his brothers and then uh, telling them these dreams and thinking that maybe it would be okay with them, I think we'll see that here Jacob uh, demonstrates that same bent of naivety because it, it seems to be quite naive of Jacob to send Joseph to check on his brothers when Jacob knows very well that the brothers hate him. And as well, we find out later in the story because uh, that Joseph, when he goes on this little trek, is wearing that special uh, robe, that infuriating robe. So Joseph heads on up to Shechem to find his brothers and his dad's uh, sheep. Up there he's wandering around uh, in the fields and some uh, local spots him and says, hey, what are you doing? Who are you looking for? And it says in verse 17, the man says, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph heads up the 15 miles north, a little bit west, uh, to Dothan to find his brother. And he finds them there. Here's the kicker in the story. Dothan is an international trade route city. It's an international freeway town. It's on the route where the Midianites and the Israelites come from up north, come down through, past the Sea of Galilee, and they head over to the coast through this town of Dothan. 
it's a it's a it's a city that has uh, some significance because of all this trade constantly going back and forth from Egypt up and from uh, the north part of uh, north of the promised land down to Egypt. The Midianites and Israelites are bringing their essential oils, their spices, and their goods uh, down through this passage. And that's where Joseph finds his brothers. And that's where his brothers throw him into the pit. And that's where his brothers sell him to the Ishmaelites and the Midianites to go down to Egypt. Just seeing the providence of God in something as simple as geography. Had they not been in Gilfin, had they stayed in Shechem, the story would have ended up very different because they'd have been uh, you know, a Canaanite country mile from an Ishmaelite or a Midianite. The story would have been very different. Implication. God is sovereign over absolutely every square inch of planet Earth. In the case of this particular episode, our first episode, he is sovereign, he's in control of something as simple as location. As the real estate motto goes, huh? Location, location, location. God is sovereign over that. Where we are on planet Earth, and that applies to everybody, not just Joseph. It applies to everybody. He arranged for Joseph to be in this particular city on an international highway route. He arranged for Adam and Eve to be in a very specific setting, that is the garden. For Abraham to be on that mountain, Moriah. For Jonah to be in that city, Nineveh. For David to be on that battlefield facing that particular giant. For Jesus to be on a hillside outside of Jerusalem. For Paul to be on a road on the way to Damascus. For the Apostle John to be on an island someplace in the Mediterranean. And so it is with every person on planet Earth. If God is sovereign over everything, he's sovereign over everybody's location on planet Earth. There's not a person who has ever lived, whoever will live, who is not providentially in the place where God has for them. Believer or unbeliever. So that includes you and me. We're in this state, Idaho. We're in the northern part of this state. We're on the road. We live next door to whoever happens to be next door. We're under the sovereign umbrella of God when it comes to our location. Do we still have free will in that? Of course we do. But God has a reason for why he has us placed wherever we are. Individually placed where we are is not willy-nilly, but ultimately God is sovereign over every sphere of life, over every square inch, and that includes where you lay your head tonight. Uh, before moving on to our next episode, we have to address this chapter 38 thing there, because if you're reading along and you get to chapter 38, and it appears like a misplaced section in the Joseph story, like some annoying commercial right in the middle of an exciting place of a streaming movie. Uh, we're going through the movie and all of a sudden it stops and it, but we're doing this, uh, well, we'll read it, uh, at least the first part. We'll read the uh, last part of verse 37 and the first part of verse 38. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him, Joseph, in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That's the last verse of 38, first verse of 39. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira, 
where Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. Then for a whole chapter, we're subjected to this kind of a bizarre story of Judah. It has nothing to do, it seems, with Joseph. So why? Well, I submit to you that it's a very well-placed interlude. It's a foil. It's a contrast. It shows on while Joseph is getting sold up in uh, Dothan, there's, uh, there's hanky-panky going on back home. That There's more assimilation going on between uh, Jacob's uh, family through Judah because here we have Judah, uh, Tom, fooling uh, around with the Canaanites. And we saw that also uh, in chapter 36. Uh, the whole assimilation thing here again the assimilation thing we're not going to be finished with that before this story is over so here again a reminder to the readers that this assimilation factor in the early portion of God's chosen people is a, was a big deal but by the way that assimilation God wasn't just concerned about purity of blood was he he was about the purity of their spiritual lives that with the uh, assimilation of those other uh, nations came the foreign gods that came with him. So that was the, that was the big deal there. Episode 2, in the prison. Back to the story of Joseph. Actually, this first part now is just the, of this episode is what leads up to Joseph being in prison. He's been sold to Potiphar. And Potiphar is, a, it seems, a pretty immediately he's impressed with this young man. And he puts him in charge of everything he owns. Everything he owns, except his wife, of course. So we enter the story here at chapter 39, verses 6 and 7. So he left, talking about Potiphar, he left all that he had in Joseph's charge, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. Now we hear, just as we saw some conflict starting between the brothers there in, in the first part of the story, we have even more conflict now. This is the conflict of the sordid variety that uh, consumes mankind in most of our modern movies. Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with this young man, who is handsome in form and appearance. Now I think the fact that he was a foreigner, a forbidden Israelite foreigner, may have added to Mrs. Potiphar's carnal desires. She continues her advancements to the point where uh, she gets Joseph cornered one day in the palace, or in the uh, home of uh, Potiphar, and uh, re- uh, results in him running off, leaving his uh, cloak behind, and, uh, and her uh, screaming and hollering. As our, in our first episode, things got pretty interesting. This is where it gets interesting in this episode. Notice Mrs. Potiphar, verse 14, she called to the men of her household. Now some versions, some translations say she called out and all the men came running. So I just have a question. Why did she call to the men of the household, the men servants, and not the women servants? Just a question, and it doesn't tell us why, but I think it's an interesting question, and my hunch, and that's all it is, it's just a hunch, this is not what the Lord says, this is just a hunch, is that she knew that the women servants knew what she was up to all along, that that wasn't hidden. Anyway, back to the story. First words out of her mouth. First words out of her mouth, see, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. Notice that? Interesting and intriguing. She immediately puts the blame on whom? 
not Joseph, on her husband. He has brought this. To... So she's, she's accusing Joseph, yes, of course. But she begins with a pretty straightforward accusation uh, aimed at her husband as well. And she doesn't stop there. When Potiphar finally walks through the door and gets home, what does she say to him? First off, verse 17, the Hebrew servant whom you brought among us came into me to laugh at me. Again, she puts the blame first, foremost, on her husband. The text then tells us, verse 19 and 20, as soon as the master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant this is the way your servant treated me. His anger was kindled and Joseph's master took him and put him in the prison. It's the prison because it's a prison that's attached to his to Potiphar's house. That's where the prison was. At first glance it might appear at first glance it does appear that Potiphar was angry with Joseph because he straight away put him in prison. But I submit to you that it's more likely that Potiphar was angry with not Joseph, but his wife. Remember, she immediately puts the blame on her husband. I think that it's uh, not a stretch to think that there's something going on between husband and wife and has been going on for some time. That's a possibility. And there's also a possibility that Potiphar maybe knew what kind of person he was married to. That's a possibility. Also, uh, that if, if Joseph would have indeed uh, been guilty of this particular crime and Potiphar believed it and knew it, do we think that Joseph would have lived long enough to see the daylight of an Egyptian prison? Not likely. Not in that context and not with the relationship and the attitude that Egyptians had towards the lowly Hebrew people. So, uh, plus this. Now, uh, notice how chapter 40 starts. So that we've, got the, we've got Joseph in prison. Now chapter 40, the first verse, we'll read that. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. The pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them. Okay, he's in prison. That, that seems to be over. Then we have this. I just want to know, who is the captain of the guard? Who is that? Uh, the answer is back in 37, verse 36. Chapter 37, verse 36. tells us exactly who the captain of the guard is. And I'll read that verse for us. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Potiphar did not have Joseph hung from some Egyptian tree. And he did not have... Joseph drowned in the Nile River. Instead, he puts him in prison, which is attached to his home, and continues to show this young man favor, give him authority and privileges. Potiphar spares Joseph's life. In that culture, in the Egyptian culture, it's an honor and shame culture, and for just a little 
bit of time when Potiphar learned of this uh, deed, or at least uh, his wife reported it, he was in a little bit of a pickle because he, he had to maintain honor. In that culture, you, particularly in his position, you have to maintain honor and you have to maintain the honor of your wife. Well, just because of this accusation, shame had been brought upon his family, and he had to do something in order to bring honor back. And so he does something, uh, because uh, his wife is playing the uh, helpless victim, and the obvious culprit is this Hebrew slave. Honor had to be restored, which Joseph, or which Potiphar does quite wisely, not by killing Joseph, which would have been entirely appropriate, but by putting Joseph in prison, which to anyone outside the prison would have thought, now that'll, that'll fix him. Because an Egyptian prison for a culturally uh, condemned Hebrew slave would not have been a pretty place to be. But Potiphar, knowing what goes on inside his prison, took care of that uh, as he continued to provide for, protect, and even promote this exceptional young foreigner. An implication of this episode and setting is this. God is always in complete control of every situation in life. For everybody. Joseph's situation as he was facing that false accusation. Adam and Eve as they faced that serpent. Abraham as he faced sacrificing his own son. David as he faced that giant, who nine foot tall giant. Jonah, as he faced preaching to a bunch of people that he despised. Jesus, as he was nailed to the cross. Paul, as he saw a great light, fell off his horse and went blind for a little while. Apostle John, as he wrote those letters to the seven churches. It's that way with every single person on planet Earth. There's not a person who has ever, ever lived who was in any situation, whether that's a predicament, a difficulty, a sickness, an illness, a temptation, uh, or something that's joyous that God has not ordained. No one. And that includes you and me this morning. Whatever we're facing, the good, the bad, and the ugly, it's not simply happenstance or fate or, fate or luck or how the stars align. We're born in a predetermined situation into a certain family, a certain era, a certain time, a certain country. We may stay in that family. We may be adopted out of that family. We might be rich. We might be poor. We might be the oldest. We might be in the middle. We might be the youngest. We are either male or female. There are no other choices there. We may be healthy. We might be handicapped. The question for all of us is how do we respond to our particular situations, whatever they may be, the good and the bad. Are we bitter, angry, anxious, skeptical? critical, judgmental, unthankful, or are we the opposite? Walking with God, obeying God, trusting God. He's there to guide us, protect us, help us, grow us through every square inch of life's situations. Episode 3, In the Palace. Episode 1, we focused on God's sovereignty over location. Where are we? Episode 2, we focused on God's sovereignty over situation. What's, what's happening to us? Now for our final episode. And before we jump into this uh, episode, just a word of explanation. Now, we're looking at this story of Joseph, obviously, from the 30,000-foot level. So we're just kind of breezing over it. 
And I know you, you most likely know the story of Joseph. You know how it ends. You know that he, uh, he gets out of prison because he interprets the dreams. He becomes second in the land uh, only to the Pharaoh. Uh, he meets his brothers again who come up from the, the promised land. Uh, eventually they come and they uh, are sent down to the land of Goshen and they live there for a little over 400 years. So you know that story. So this morning we're just going to zero in on this last episode on one small, somewhat insignificant scene uh, in Joseph's life. And that scene comes in chapter 43. It takes place on the brothers' second trip up from uh, Promised Land to Egypt. They arrive and they explain to the steward of Joseph's house, he's not home yet, and they explain why they're there and their understanding regarding the money that they found in their sacks the last time they went home. So they explain all of that. And uh, we'll start the scene at verse uh, 26 of chapter 43. When Joseph came home, they, this is brothers, brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Now picking up at verse 30. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother. That's Benjamin, his, his true blood brother. And he sought a place to weep. He entered his chamber and he wept there. Then he washed his face and came out and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. They served him by himself and them by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves because the Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews for that is an abomination to Egyptians. Main thing we want to get from this scene is this fact that Joseph and his brothers We're not allowed to eat, not allowed to sit at the same table as the Egyptians. Why? Because it's an abomination for any Egyptian to eat with any Hebrews. Egyptians did not hobnob with Hebrews during that uh, era. Hebrew folk were never invited to an Egyptian's place for a party, for a wedding, for a funeral, for anything. Not even for afternoon tea, not ever Here the author of Genesis is giving a clue as to why, in the big picture of things, why 70 Israelites were brought from out of the land of Canaan to spend 400 years in Egypt. As with our other episodes, here's what gets really interesting. As we saw in chapters 36, before the the Joseph story started with Esau, and with chapter 39, that interlude, this assimilation thing was a big deal, assimilation of God's fledgling clan with the in-house Canaanites was no small issue. It was a huge temptation to them, a temptation that they were often giving, giving in to. God, in this story of Joseph, sovereignly takes his people, all 70 of them, out of the land he promised them, a land filled with milk and honey, and tempting Canaanite women and men, and God places his people in a country that is extremely nationalistic. I mean, this was Megaland. Not Megaland. This is Megaland. Like, make Egypt great again. There was no assimilation going on during these days in Egypt, believe me. Uh, It was not part of the Egyptian society or policy. None. None whatsoever. Intermarriage was more than discouraged. It was forbidden. Joseph's relatives were put away in the land of Goshen. They're still in Egypt, but they're put down, they're put up there on the, by the where the Nile runs into the Mediterranean. They're Mediterranean. They're put up there. 
where they would be out of the Egyptians' hair and affairs, and where the Egyptian plan would grow in a matter of four centuries, unhindered by intermarriage, from a small family tribe to an unadulterated nation of millions. God was building, protecting, growing, and expanding his chosen people. Episode 1, location. Episode 2, situation. Episode 3, expansion. What was God doing? Why did why was this story of Joseph so incredibly important? God through orchestrating all of those events took them to a place where they would expand where they would become a nation in terms of numbers and they would become that nation in an unadulterated fashion away from the uh, temptations and the temptresses he was expanding that small Hebrew clan into a large Israelite nation this, this is not just the story of Joseph this is the story of God's Old Testament nation as God is bringing them along building a nation out of a family group, part of God's overarching story of redemption of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, from the creation and fall of Adam and Eve, God has been redeeming, protecting, providing for, keeping and expanding his kingdom, his chosen people. And that's going on today as well in the, in the church of God. It is expanding around us. Geographically, culturally, linguistically, ethnically. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's spreading to every corner, every nation, every language, every culture on planet Earth. Yes, he's sovereign over location, situation, and expansion. And that will come to a close when around the throne of God, there's this new song of Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Abraham Kuyper was correct. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine! Exclamation mark. God is sovereign. And I pray that as we walk out of the doors of this building this morning, that we will be convinced of that in our head and in our hearts. That's what the story of Joseph is about. It's a grand story of God and his people and God expanding his kingdom from, Revel from Genesis to Revelation and through this smaller story in the life of Joseph. God is placing, directing, redeeming, expanding his chosen people for their good and for his glory. Amen.